The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In July of 1845, a 27-year-old Massachusetts man, the son of a pencil maker, went into the woods and built a cabin near a pond. The construction cost him $28.12. He lived there for two years, living alone and in nature and recording his experiences. Later, he would write of his motivations, quote, I went into the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life, living is so dear, nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms, and, if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world, or if it were sublime, to know it by experience." and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. End quote. That man, of course, was Henry David Thoreau, and his account of his two years in the woods near Walden Pond has made him one of the most famous of all 19th century Americans. And he has another source of fame, too. Halfway through his time in the woods, in July of 1846, he ran into a man named Sam Staples, who, as it happened, worked as a local tax collector. Staples noted that Thoreau owed six years' worth of back taxes. Thoreau, a lifelong abolitionist, refused to pay, citing the continuance of slavery and the Mexican-American War, in which the United States was seeking to increase its territory and turn more land into slaveholding states. Thoreau believed these actions to be unjust, and he believed it was incumbent upon him to resist them, even at the cost of his own liberty. He was put in jail for his refusal. The experience had a profound effect on him. A few months after his emergence from the woods, he gave a speech about the experience, which was later published under the title Resistance to Civil Government. Today, we know the essay is On Civil Disobedience, and it's gone on to influence protesters, passive resistors, civil disobedience, and revolutionaries around the world from Gandhi to Martin Luther King, Jr. Read today, the essay inspires as many questions as answers. What was Thoreau doing, exactly, and what does it mean for us today? As inspirational as the rhetoric is, the practical consequences are not all that clear. Then again, confusion about whether or how to protest is nothing new. What's right? What's justified? What's effective? What's necessary? What's counterproductive? Here's John Lennon, singing about revolution in June of 1968 as the world spun with news of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, campus uprisings around the world, Mao's cultural revolution, new left movements, protests in Poland against the Soviet Union and the communist government. In America, the civil rights movement had exploded with the assassination of Martin Luther King in April of that year. And John Lennon sings. 
Did you hear that? Don't you know that you can count me out? In. He couldn't decide. You don't hear that line in the version they released as a single, the hard rock version with the distorted guitars. Actually, that single was the B-side of Hey Jude. My God, only the Beatles would have a song like Revolution and then have a song that was better than that to put out. The B-side might be the best single of all time when you count both sides, with its main competition being Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. The same thing. Imagine a song like Strawberry Fields coming on the back of the single you buy, the one you get for free. We Can Work It Out was another one like that, coming on the back of Day Tripper. These were double A sides. Only the Beatles. And now, because we don't buy singles in pairs anymore, it probably doesn't really mean much to anyone under the age of 30. Ah, well, the songs live on. Back to our story. Here's John Lennon. He's in favor of revolution, sort of, but he's against it, sort of. He's thinking it through. When you talk about destruction, count me out. In. It kind of makes sense. On the one hand, two wrongs do not make a right. There's no room for destruction in this world we're trying to bring about, this world of peace. On the other hand, what gets attention? If we have slavery... On one side, what is a smashed window? On the other, if the police have murdered someone and turning over a cop car does more than a hundred people standing in a park holding up a sign, what do you do? And how do you respond to the assassination of Martin Luther King? He preached nonviolence. He was murdered. Do we do nothing violent in return? And here's another question. Should you break the law? Must you break the law? Thoreau said you did, and you must be willing to go to jail for it. He said some high-minded things about it. He said, quote, Under a government which imprisons any unjustly, the true place for a just man is also a prison. End quote. But his experience was not what we might expect today from prison. He was there for one night. He was treated reasonably well. He found the experience interesting. What if he'd been sent to jail for 20 years and treated cruelly? Would we still say his refusal to pay his taxes was a good thing? Couldn't he have used that time better? By running for office, say? Or advocating for change as a free man? What factors make going to jail better than working through the political process? And is not paying your taxes the best way to protest government activity? What if everyone stopped paying their taxes? Who would pay for the schools, the roads, the good things the government does? And surely everyone could find something they don't like that the government does. I might protest slavery, but my neighbor might feel just as strongly about abortion or vaccinations or the condoning of same-sex marriage. And someone else might protest giving aid to foreign hurricane victims when children are living in poverty at home. What government action, if any, rises to the level that justifies not paying taxes? Who defines an injustice worthy of that step? Can you find a better way to protest? Must you protest? Should you? Can you? We're going to sort through this today. We'll give you not just the muddlings of Thoreau, but all the the inspired muddlings... (laughs) (laughs) Don't mean to be tearing down Thoreau here. But we'll also talk about all the lessons learned since then, all the work done by philosophers to help sort these questions out. But it's not the philosophers 
who came later, who are most often read and cited today. It's Thoreau, with this little essay, full of Thoreau's stubborn positions and workmanlike prose. It's poetic, too, but in that naughty New Englander way. It's balanced and measured and logical and awfully hard to refute, even when you feel as if it's assuming things that maybe shouldn't be assumed, or seeming to provide advice that is less certain than the author seems to think. But the power is there. The ideas in the essay were taken up by Gandhi and Martin Luther King. We see them in Colin Kaepernick's kneeling, in sit-ins and walkouts, in freedom riding and marches to the sea. They are embedded in the protesters of today, whether gathering in a park, kneeling in a plaza, holding up signs en masse, or the lonely soul who stands by the side of the road, holding up his handmade sign as cars travel by, honking. Protest takes many forms. Conscientious objecting, boycotts, violent protests, revolution. Are these all lumped together? Or are there meaningful distinctions? We're looking at Henry David Thoreau and the concept of civil disobedience today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. A great show today. Timely show as protests fill the news, and we'll be talking about that a bit. But we're also translating this into the world of literature and our man, Henry David Thoreau. We'll look at who he was, what he was protesting, and how the questions he left unanswered. We won't be talking much about his time at Walden Pond. That will be another episode where we'll be visited by a woman who herself spent a year in nature, not as fully immersed as the a uh, man in the cabin in the woods, but in that same spirit. But first, let's hear from some listeners. Here's an email from Chris. It's a follow-up to his email about his book club. Do you remember that? His book club with his three daughters. Subject, thank you, Jack. Jack, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the C.S. Lewis episode. I also got my mom involved in the book club with my three daughters and love hearing the generational crosstalk. She went to college in the 1950s and brings a whole different perspective to the discussions regarding the 1960s, roles of women, etc. So far, we've read Madame Bovary, Age of Innocence, Handmaid's Tale, Heart of Darkness, Silas Marner, and Mrs. Dalloway. Think next we will do Willa Cather. I have always considered great books an exploration of sorts and an insight to life itself, and yes, after 30 years in the Navy, I now prefer reading my adventures in a lazy boy next to my trusty Airedale Terrier, Asta. Thanks again. I just love your podcast. If I was back in college and you were a professor, I'd sign up for every class. Keep up the great work. Most sincerely, Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. What an absolutely beautiful book club you've got going there. You are making great choices both the books you're choosing and the people with whom you are discussing them. You've even chosen the perfect name for your dog, Asta, which is, of course, the thin man's dog, which, of course, makes me think of Myrna Loy, which always makes me happy. You're winning at life, Chris. Good luck to you and your daughters and your mother, and thank you for the email. Subject, 
Greetings from Mitchelston, Ireland. I'm guessing that's Mitchelston, and I'll pronounce it that way. In Wisconsin, it would be called Mitchellstown, but that's not definitive. In Michigan, they call M-A-L... Sorry. <laughs> Milan, you know it as M-I-L-A-N. They call that Milan. In Michigan, Milan, Michigan. M-I-L-A-N. The world might know that as Milan. But nope, it's Milan. Milan, Michigan. Potato, potato, well, that's not even potato, potato, is it? Milan and Milan, that's more like potato and what the hell is this thing? Let's call it whatever we want. We don't even need to pretend. Potato, pot, at, ooh. Dear Jack. I just went out for my first walk in weeks and queued up your William Trevor episode as company. I'm an American who's lived in Ireland for 17 years. My first 10 years were in Cork City, where for much of it I was an administrator at a literary festival, where I had the chance to meet literary greats like Yi Yoon Lee and Claire Keegan. Sadly, I never had the chance to meet William Trevor. My partner is from Mitchelston, and we moved here seven years ago when we decided to start a family. In fact, I live across the street from the William Trevor House. When I first moved here, the Buddhist monks... Or, sorry, when I first moved here, Thai Buddhist monks were living in it and holding weekly meditation sessions. Since then, it has been sold to a private owner, and a large holy statue of what appears to be St. Patrick has been installed in one of the upstairs windows. I often wonder if the Buddhist monks are okay in the current state of things. They have moved a few doors down to the building that housed the former youth center. I have attached photos from my walk of the plaque on his house and the statue in tribute to him in the town square. Thank you for what you do. I frequently listen to your podcasts when I go for walks, and it was really lovely to return to movement while listening to a Trevor story. When I first moved to Mitchelston, I was having a hard time with the translate, transition to life in a small town, and William Trevor's stories, as lonely as they are, were key to me settling here. I wonder if you have read Claire Keegan's work. I imagine you have. Like Yi Yoon Lee, she is a great admirer of Trevor's. Maybe you've even done an episode on Keegan, and I'm embarrassing myself. Ha ha. I would be happy to send you her books if you haven't. If you and your family ever find yourself in County Cork, please feel free to swing by Mitchelston for a cuppa. In the Buddhist tradition of my neighbors, may you and yours be well, happy, and free from suffering. Kindest regards, Jennifer. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. I enjoyed the description of your walks over there in Mitchelston. I would love to swing by for a cuppa. Why not? We can build that into our European tour as we head toward the vineyards in the south of France, reading books like maniacs all the way. And we'll look for the Trevor House with the Buddhist monks who used to live there, which is perfect. Patience. That's what I need more of. Patience, thoughtfulness, peace, and tranquility. Alleviation from suffering. There's a time for, for action. Maybe now is that time, but maybe it's the kind of action that needs inner tranquility as well. We can learn a lot from Buddhist monks, or at least I have in my life, and my Buddhist father, who's not actually a Buddhist, but is its close cousin, I think 
You know what I mean. Buddhist temperament. We'll read from... Sorry. Something's going on with my mind and my brain and my tongue today. We'll read some Yi Yun Lee and some Claire Keegan and some William Trevor. Thank you for the email, Jennifer, and for the photos. Here's an email from Ray in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Subject, a loyal student of Jack and Mike. Hi, Jack. I can't tell you how happy I am that I came across your podcast. I listen to you while I work from home these days, when I run, and when I go to bed. Before I started listening, I was a little intimidated with certain novels, and more particularly, certain authors. In my early 20s, I read what I thought was a lot of literature, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Cheever, and more importantly, the mid-century black writers. Invisible Man is far and away my favorite novel. But when I hear what you and Mike have plowed through, I realized I haven't read anything. What I've learned from you and Mike that has opened my eyes and helped me the most is, regardless of how well-read you two are, you still come away from certain books confused and bewildered. And that, it's not the sign of a poor reader. It's a gift that the author has given you to think of all the possible scenarios and explanations your mind can handle. I avoided certain books out of fear of not understanding. I did something last week that I thought I would never do. I finished a novel that, until I listened to your podcast, thought was out of my comfort zone. I read Madame Bovary and was transfixed with the story, but more importantly, with the sentences. As our country goes through this terrible time, I find it peaceful to return to the 19th century and escape. When I would jokingly text my brother plot twists such as, "Uh Uh-oh, Rodolphe is about to seduce Emma. He has no knowledge or interest in the novel. He would reply with something on the lines of, Our world is burning and you're in the 19th century. And he's right. But sometimes a mind needs distractions from an unfair world, a pandemic, and most importantly, a child president. And I don't feel bad about checking out sometimes. You introduced me to Alice Monroe, and I bought a collection of her stories. I never heard of The Magic Mountain until I heard Mike fawn over it constantly, like a love-stricken teenager fawns over the most popular girl in school. But unlike the out-of-your-league girl, I could just go on to Amazon and pick up a copy. It's my next book, only if getting the most popular girl in school was just an Amazon click away. I donated to your podcast the first time I've ever done that. I still feel bad about listening to NPR all these years without donating and hope you feel like providing the service to your listeners for a long time. I will not suggest any authors or books you should take a crack at because the episodes I find the best are the ones with authors or books I haven't heard of and I learn so much about them. I know this email isn't as poetic and finely written as most of the ones you get. I get the feeling some of them are... are auditioning for you, haha. But I just wanted to add my voice to your ever-growing fan club and to let you know I appreciate what you're doing. Best regards, Ray. P.S. I'm still afraid to tackle the Russians. Baby steps. Oh, Ray. Ray, Ray, Ray. I love this email. It has its own poetry. It's very finely written. I'm very glad to have your voice contributing here. And here, here's a perfect example. Quote, I never heard of the Magic Mountain until I heard Mike fawn over it constantly like a love-stricken teenager fawns over the most popular girl in school. End quote. A perfect sentence. I, 
I enjoyed that sentence greatly, so much so that I clipped it out and sent it to Mike. Look at this, Mike. Isn't this a good sentence? He didn't enjoy it quite as much as I did. I said, I just got an email with a perfect sentence, don't you think? Here it is. His response was tepid. In fact, he kind of changed the subject. Well, what can I say? He must be lacking in the area of aesthetic appreciation. Not everyone can be an astute critic such as myself. So, thank you very much, Ray, and good luck to you as you row your literary boat further and further away from the shore. The waters can be choppy, but the vista is sublime. You will not regret tackling the Russians. Chekhov's short stories, notes from underground, then Anna Karenina, you will be on your way. If Anna Karenina seems too daunting, you can also try The Death of Ivan Ilyich to get a little taste of Tolstoy, but eventually you will want to cover War and Peace and Crime and Punishment and Brothers Karamazov. But take your time and read according to what compels you. This isn't homework and it's not a checklist. Dive into this ocean because you want to feel the sensation, the vastness of the water, the feeling that something is bigger than you and bolder and more infinite and more dangerous, but you are also a living being with your own integrity, your own body, your own mind, and you belong in this ocean just like everything else that finds its home there. Don't jump in because you feel like you have to. Jump in when you feel like you want to. Speaking of oceans... Let's shrink down to the pond and our subject for today, Henry David Thoreau. We'll take a quick break and come back with Thoreau and his views on the government, the individual, and the role of protest. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
Okay, I've got 10 questions here. These are the 10 questions I jotted down. This is what I think we need to cover on this subject. I'm going to try to answer them all, but we can combine a bunch toward the end. Let's see if we can keep the answers short enough that we can get you in and out of here quickly. Kind of like Thoreau in jail, actually. Someone interfered and paid the bill, he said, paid his taxes for him. Interfered. Not someone rescued me or someone bailed me out. Someone came to my rescue. Nope. Someone interfered. It's kind of Thoreau in a nutshell. Others were always there for him, and he was a little prickly about it. But now we're getting right into our first question. Number one, who was Henry David Thoreau? Thoreau was a thinker, a dreamer, but he also had a fiercely practical side, and he was as stubborn as hell. I hardly ever do this, but here's a physical description of him. The poet Ellery Channing wrote, quote, His face, once seen, could not be forgotten. The features were quite marked. The nose aquiline or very Roman, like one of the portraits of Caesar, more like a beak, as was said. Large, overhanging brows above the deepest set blue eyes that could be seen in certain lights, and in others gray, eyes expressive of all shades of feeling, but never weak or nearsighted, the forehead not unusually broad or high, full of concentrated energy and purpose, the mouth with prominent lips, pursed up with meaning and thought when silent, and giving out when open with the most varied and unusual instructive sayings. End quote. Thoreau's father was a pencil maker, owned a pencil factory, a very good pencil maker, in fact, though eventually the Thoreau Pencil Factory had trouble competing with the European pencil makers of the day who were making a better product. Henry David Thoreau, who was known as David in his lifetime, jumped into the problem. Well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. First, we should say Thoreau went to Harvard, where he learned Latin and read literature and philosophy and so on, but he didn't get his diploma. Harvard gave out a handsome diploma made of sheepskin and charged $5 for it to the students. Thoreau was outraged. Let the sheep keep their skin, he said, and refused to pay. There were a lot of refusals in those days. He didn't want to work in the pencil factory, so he found other work, worked as a teacher, but he refused to beat the students. Finally, after receiving yet another reprimand from his employer for not implementing corporal punishment, he flogged five students with a ruler and quit. Later in life, he opened up a school of his own where he taught some young students, including Louisa May Alcott, who went on to write Little Women. New England at that time was full of these little connections. Thoreau not only knew Ralph Waldo Emerson, he lived in his house for a while, and it was on Emerson's land that Thoreau built his cabin. He knew Nathaniel Hawthorne and Margaret Fuller and Bronson Alcott, the father of Louisa May, and others too. Even among these thinkers, Thoreau stood out. He refused to be confined by conventional thinking. His view of the world transcended the narrower, more canonical view of academia and scholarship. It had the name Transcendentalism, in fact, and he became one of its leading lights. Transcendentalism came out of Romanticism and emphasized subjective intuition over objective empiricism. It was inspired by ideas found in German philosophers like Kant, Hindu texts like the Upanishads, and the principles of the Unitarian Church. 
It emphasized the freedom of conscience, the importance of intense spiritual experience, and the value of intellectual reason. It was perfect for an individual like Thoreau, and we can see where it led him, to the intellectual position that a government, especially an unjust government, could not exert dominion over an individual's spiritual life. A thinking individual needed to be free to think, and to reason, and to take moral positions, even when they contradicted the positions of the government. Thoreau was against slavery all his life. It was a constant reminder that the government, the United States, for all its promise, for all the inspiring rhetoric of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, was deeply, deeply flawed, and had always been. What is a thinking person to do? If you want to do good, what are your options when just following the laws and paying your taxes is not ending this atrocity? I said before that we'd return to the pencil maker. I don't want you to think that Thoreau was some pie-in-the-sky idealist. He kind of was, but there was a practical side to him as well. He kept careful track of his expenses, famously in Walden, where he talked about how much he spent for his house and so on. And when he was in between teaching gigs, he finally did relent and worked for a while in the pencil factory. The gap in quality between the Thoreau pencil and the European pencils irritated him, and he immersed himself in the science of graphite and the materials you could combine it with, the binding agents. He studied the European pencils that were coming across on ships and read as much as he could as he could uh, find out about what they were doing over in Europe. And he eventually hit upon a solution that made the Thoreau pencil the best pencil in America. They sold like hotcakes. People raved about them. These work so well. Excellent. It flows onto the page. These, it's a joy to write with these things. In Thoreau's lifetime, his pencils were far more famous than his writings. Number two. What was he protesting, and how? Thoreau hated slavery. There was no slavery in Massachusetts, of course. It was a southern institution, the institution of slavery. But Thoreau was not blind to the role of the northern states. Slavery was unpopular in the north, and yet they didn't rise up and stop it. A few years later, the Sl Fugitive Slave Act was going to pass, an abominable law that required federal marshals to round up slaves that had escaped to the North and return them to their slave owners. Officials in the past had been looking the other way. Now, they were required to act, and local officials were required to help them. So a state like Massachusetts, which in the past could say, well, yes, there's slavery in the South, but that's miles and miles away from here. Suddenly, they had their constables and local officials who had to participate in the injustice, hunting down, rounding up, delivering a human being back to the sick and torturing person who claimed him or her as property. I want to be clear about the timeline. The Fugitive Slave Act was passed a few years after Thoreau refused to pay his taxes, but this was the kind of thing that was in the air. The point I wanted to make was that northern states helped pass the act, when it came around, senators from the North voted for it. And throughout the 1830s and 1840s, throughout Thoreau's lifetime, in other words, his taxes went to a federal government that supported 
the institution of slavery. Southern senators and northern senators alike. Northern politicians tolerated slavery, sometimes out of compromise with the South, and often because they too benefited from slavery. Thoreau was not blind to this. He wrote, quote, Practically speaking, the opponents to a reform in Massachusetts are not a hundred thousand politicians in the South, but a hundred thousand merchants and farmers here, who are more interested in commerce and agriculture than they are in humanity, and are not prepared to do justice to the slave and to Mexico, cost what it may. I quarrel not with far-off foes, but with those who, near at home, cooperate with and do the bidding of those far away, and without whom the latter would be harmless. End quote. This was his quarrel, those who valued money over principle, when the principle was something as unjust as slavery and the conquering of Mexican territory, which, as I said earlier, was not just unlawful in Thoreau's view, but would further spread the barbarous institution of slavery into new territory. So he protested by not paying his poll tax. He paid a tax raised for highways because he had no objection to his neighbors having better roads, but the poll tax would contribute to the war and to the institution of slavery. For Thoreau, that meant he wasn't going to pay, and he was prepared to pay the consequences. He spent his night in jail, was bailed out by someone, probably his Aunt Maria, and then he wrote his essay. Why not just try to effect change through the ballot box? Well, that hadn't worked. The North was against slavery and had been for nearly a hundred years. It hadn't ended it. The South was too convinced and money was too powerful a tonic to resist. The dilemma we see in figures like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, both of them slave owners who believed in freedom but couldn't give up the free labor and the advantages that that brought them, was played out. That dilemma was played out by the entire nation. Right, it's horrible, but hey, there's money to be made. Just don't look too carefully. It's the same dilemma you see in Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. When Marlowe returns to London, profiting handsomely as a result of colonialism, the London I mean, it's the debate over prison labor and environmental degradation and working conditions in Chinese factories. Yes, it's awful, it's barbaric, it's wrong, we're against it. But it's money. So... Thoreau wrote, quote, Unjust laws exist. Shall we be content to obey them, or shall we endeavor to amend them, and obey them until we have succeeded, or shall we transgress them at once? Men generally, under such a government as this, think that they ought to wait until they have persuaded the majority to alter them. They think that, if they should resist, the remedy would be worse than the evil. But it is the fault of the government itself that the remedy is worse than the evil. It makes it worse. Why is it not more apt to anticipate and provide for reform? Why does it not cherish its wise minority? Why does it cry and resist before it is hurt? Why does it not encourage its citizens to put out its faults and do better than it would have them? Why does it always crucify Christ and excommunicate Copernicus and Luther and pronounce Washington and Franklin rebels. And he gave his answer. Quote, 
If the injustice is part of the necessary friction of the machine of government, let it go, let it go. Perchance it will wear smooth. Certainly the machine will wear out. If the injustice has a spring or a pulley or a rope or a crank exclusively for itself, then perhaps you may consider whether the remedy will not be worse than the evil. But if it is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then I say, break the law. Let your life be a counter-friction to stop the machine. What I have to do is to see, at any rate, that I do not lend myself to the wrong which I condemn. As for adopting the ways which the state has provided for remedying the evil, I know not of such ways. They take too much time, and a man's life will be gone. I have other affairs to attend to. I came into this world not chiefly to make this a good place to live in, but to live in it, be it good or bad. A man has not everything to do, but something, and because he cannot do everything, it is not necessary that he should do something wrong. It is not my business to be petitioning the governor or the legislature any more than it is theirs to petition me. And if they should not hear my petition, what should I do then? But in this case, the state has provided no way. Its very constitution is the evil. This may seem to be harsh and stubborn and unconciliatory, but it is to treat with the utmost kindness and consideration the only spirit that can appreciate or deserves it. So is all change for the better, like birth and death, which convulse the body. I do not hesitate to say that those who call themselves abolitionists should at once effectually withdraw their support, both in person and property, from the government of Massachusetts, and not wait till they constitute a majority of one before they suffer the right to prevail through them. I think that it is enough if they have God on their side without waiting for that other one. Moreover, any man more right than his neighbors constitutes a majority of one already. End quote. That gives you a flavor of what Thoreau was after. We're running a little long here, so we've only done two of our ten questions. So let's take one more quick break, and then I'll run through the rest of our questions with lightning-like speed. Okay, we're back. We can move through the rest of the questions quickly now, in part because we've already covered many of them. Number three, what questions did Thoreau leave unanswered? I think you already know. He doesn't say what rises to the level of injustice. Slavery certainly qualifies. How about torture? I learned all about the torture that had been going on in our second Iraq war. I hated it. I don't know anything that would justify it. America decided to do it as a policy, and it was on my watch. I still paid my taxes. The law compelled me to pay taxes. I don't know if I should have gone to jail for that. Thoreau 
didn't help. He also doesn't say what else he did. Someone interfered. What then? What did he do? How did he fight against slavery after that, other than writing this essay? He seems to be saying that he needs to be free, that his mind needs to be free, that you can't let the state erode your conscience or affect your entire life. But is that enough? Would he have blown up the tax collector's office if he had to? He's silent about that, too. Think about that. Here's the prophet of civil disobedience. He's telling you about his own experience. He's urging it on others. He's saying, be a friction. Stop the machine. And yet, other than his example, he offers no advice for when or why or what. We don't know what to protest, and we don't know how to protest. My town says they're going to chop down the trees in the park to make room for a tennis court. Surely that's not enough to warrant not paying my taxes to break the law. Can I break the law for that? Well, what if those trees happen to be the home of owls and deer? What if there's a family of immigrants who have a house there and they're going to relocate that? They're going to chop down the house too. What then? Slavery is clearly bad. But if you're wondering if Jim Crow laws or police brutality qualifies, you aren't going to find the answer in Thoreau. Maybe that's the point. Maybe it's about the individual conscience. But what if I disagree with everyone else's judgment? What if they decide it's important to lynch abortion doctors? Where will this help? Where will I find the answers? Which brings me to my next question. Actually, my next two. Maybe my next four. I'll start with my next two. Number four, how did this get taken up by Gandhi and King? And five, what is civil disobedience? Well, Wandis, Gandhi, and Martin Luther King Jr. have changed the way we think of civil disobedience. Civil does a little sleight of hand work here. It's a slippery word that means two different things. Civil means polite. Try to be civil. We say, oh, try to be civil. Can't you be civil? Polite. It also has a meaning that means of the state, of the government, a word related to the word civic. Thoreau definitely meant civil in the second sense. He was talking about resistance that you make to the government. You were disobedient to the government. He was not saying, and your disobedience should be nonviolent. Those principles were added by Gandhi and King. It solves... One of the dilemmas that I suggested above, we can't say, well, your act of protest is wrong because it's illegal, because the point is that laws are sometimes unjust and must be defied. We are appealing to an individual's higher moral conscience in an unjust world. That's kind of the point. The Constitution and the laws on the books have failed. The system of justice has failed. What then? Resist. But what are we appealing to then? Higher moral authority, sanctioned by religion, perhaps, and certainly not contradicted by religion, and sanctioned by reason and by morals. You're not supposed to be hypocrites here, murdering to end an atrocity. If you were solely gauging your actions by the impact that they would have, you'd have a different calculus. You might think, well, holding up a sign on a street corner will get me noticed by 10 or maybe 50 or maybe 100 people. If I blow up a plane full of passengers, my message will be noticed by millions or billions. Thoreau would object to this, and Gandhi and King made that even more clear. 
Gandhi called his program Satyagraha, a word he invented from two Sanskrit words meaning truth and insistence. One means truth, the other means insistence, or truth and holding firmly to. For Gandhi, nonviolence was essential to the project. There were practical reasons for this. The first is that in campaigning against injustice, it was important not to commit unjust acts. In my example of a terrorist blowing up a plane, innocent people will die. That's unjust. It was even, for Gandhi, not enough to exercise what's called passive resistance. He said, quote, I have drawn the distinction between passive resistance as understood and practiced in the West and satyagraha before I had evolved the doctrine of the latter to its full logical and spiritual extent. I often used passive resistance and satyagraha as synonymous terms, but as the doctrine of satyagraha developed, the expression passive resistance ceases even to be synonymous as passive resistance has admitted of violence as in the case of the suffragettes and has been universally acknowledged universally acknowledged to be a weapon of the weak. Moreover, passive resistance does not necessarily involve complete adherence to truth under every circumstance. Therefore, it is different from satyagraha in three essentials. Satyagraha is the weapon of the strong. It admits of no violence under any circumstance whatsoever and it ever insists upon truth. End quote. There's a key mechanism that Gandhi talks about a lot more than Thoreau. Gandhi loved Thoreau, by the way. So did Martin Luther King Jr. It's not as if Thoreau's essay is full of holes. I don't mean to suggest that. It's inspiring. It's compelling. It's worth reading. You come away from it with a lot of respect for Thoreau. But there's a mechanism that it was left to Gandhi and King to take up. I think, in fact, it will answer all the rest of our questions, maybe all, most of them. So let's get to those, and then I'll give you the secret. But first, let me talk about a couple of other features of civil disobedience. One is direct versus indirect. What does that mean? Direct would be chaining yourself to a tree so it's not cut down. Direct is showing up at the lunch counter during a period of segregation. Direct is Gandhi protesting the salt tax by marching to the sea and making salt from the water. The salt march was ingenious. It's one of my favorite protests of all time. Since 1882, Indians were not allowed to collect or sell salt without paying a tax to their British rulers. These were poor people. Salt is essential to their diet, and the British profited from it and kept people further impoverished through this tax. Gandhi said, we can protest this in a nonviolent way. He wrote to the authorities and announced that in 10 days he would be defying the salt tax. Then he started walking to the ocean, 240 miles away. Along the way, he was joined by Indian citizens. Tens of thousands of people joined him on this march. He arrived at the beach. There were salt deposits there. He was going to take the salt freely without paying the tax. The British had gotten there first and crushed it into the mud. Think about what's happening here. How ridiculous this position is for the British. 
we own this country, they were saying, we own the salt, you're breaking the law. We're willing to destroy this salt in order to stop you from taking it without paying us a tax on it. Gandhi reached down, picked up a lump of salt that hadn't been fully blended into the mud, raised it up, and in doing this, he broke the law. He was arrested, along with nearly 60,000 of his supporters. The British could say, well, you broke the law. What you did is illegal, and the punishment is arrest and prison. But the response comes easily. Why are you here, British authorities? Why is this your salt? You're locking up 60,000 people. For what? Because you own this beach, this sea water, this ocean? What claim are you making? Why do you own it? Why are you here? Gandhi's salt march had all the qualities you'd want from civil disobedience. It was directly related to the injustice. The SALT Act was indicative of something larger, of course, of the whole project of colonialism. The act was nonviolent. It was well-publicized, it was easy to understand, and it broke no other laws that was important to Gandhi. He insisted on that. Follow all the other laws. Be strategic about the ones that you're breaking, but show that you respect the other laws. He didn't need to burn anything down. He didn't need to harm anyone. He was walking to a beach and reaching down and picking up a lump of salt. We can see these same principles in Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, he took a tour of India to study the philosophy of Gandhi, to meet with government leaders and and civic leaders, leaders of movements, organizers. This was 1959 that he did this. He stayed there for five weeks talking to people. He had already become famous for his organization of boycotts like the one of Montgomery Buses shining a light on Jim Crow laws. He organized, when he came back, he organized other things, including a freedom march in Washington, D.C. in 1963. 250,000 protesters walking in D.C. Now, we see the next few questions here. They're coming into view. Is civil disobedience legal? Is it effective? Is it morally justified? When is it not those things? How do we assess a protest? How do we know what we ourselves want to do? It's not always possible to find the perfect direct solution the way Gandhi did. King found it. Sitting down at a lunch counter exposed the insanity and abomination of Jim Crow laws. I can't eat here. I can't buy a ham sandwich, a bowl of soup. Why not? In this department store, you're telling me my money's no good here? Why? Why do I have to sit at the back of the bus? What are you saying? What are you saying about me? You're going to put me in jail? Bring the force of the state down upon me because I want to sit in a seat in the front of a bus? Those are beautiful forms of protest. Those are when the protest syncs up nicely with what you are protesting and how you, the means by which you can protest it. But maybe that's not available. Not every injustice lends itself to that. Maybe the only way to protest something is to withhold support in another way. Maybe you need to have 
tens of thousands of people in a square in order to demonstrate against a war, for example. How else do you protest a war? I'm not sure. Maybe there's not that direct link. Maybe you can organize a boycott of companies that make war supplies or that support the politicians who support the war. That's one form of protest, but it's not civil disobedience. Not in the truest form of that word, the purest form, which is civil, civic, or resisting the government. It's indirect. Might be the best available or the most effective that you can find. My next few questions are along the same lines. Is it legal? Is it justified? Is it effective? How do we assess a protest? How do we know what to do? Everyone has a different moral compass, I guess. Police brutality is our current focus. It's having a moment, and that's great, in my view. Black lives matter. So simple and so essential. Black lives matter. They do. No one should have to live in a country where they feel like they don't matter at all or even that they don't matter as much. If you pay taxes, you sign up to be drafted in the army, you do everything else that every citizen does, you shouldn't have to feel like when you call the police, you might be in more trouble than if you never called them. We see the videos. They are as horrendous as the dogs being sicked on people in the 60s. There seems to be change afoot, and that is great. The cynic in me will say yes. Black Lives Matter is having a moment now. But Me Too had a moment. School shootings had a moment. We tend to go through these things and then change doesn't happen. And five years, ten years, twenty years later, we're right back where we started. These things are hard as hell to change. On the other hand, things do change. Taking a long-term view, yes, we lost some progress in LGBTQ issues just this week. But same-sex marriage appears to be here to stay. I think. Yes, we see some ugly racism, the same ugly racism returning again and again and again, but we don't have school segregation. That took hold. Maybe things do get better. We can be hopeful and we can keep working, but let's make this practical because there's a real question here. Why be nonviolent? The police aren't. The government isn't. Would people listen more if everyone was armed? We saw that in Michigan, didn't we? Armed citizens stormed the Capitol with guns, angry about the pandemic. And what did the president say? He said, the governor should give a little. I don't think the governor of Michigan did give a little, but that tactic can work sometimes. We know that. Terrorists sometimes get what they want. And you can be high-minded and say two wrongs don't make a right. But a protester might say, I'm being ignored. The injustice is profound. The system is indifferent to change. Why don't I blow up this bridge? Maybe that's my appeal to a higher moral authority. Maybe that's my way of saying that I need to resist. Here's what Gandhi and King would say. I would say it too, but who cares about me? Here's what Gandhi and King would say. You're trying to convince that's your job as a protester. It's not trying to force. That's part of it. But you're trying to force through the mechanism of persuasion. You're the minority. The injustice is there. You're losing at the ballot box. You can't count on elections because you're the minority. If you're the righteous minority, it doesn't mean you will win elections. 
Now, you could arm yourselves and blow up buildings, but ultimately, even setting aside your own loss of moral authority or feeling of spiritual righteousness, if you have a conscience, then these things weigh on you. That's one thing. Set that aside. Set aside that if you respond to injustice with violence, if you take innocent lives or destroy property, you may become the thing that you are protesting against, an unjust person. Set that aside. Another problem is you might not be effective that way. Look at the beauty of Gandhi's march to the sea. The whole world stopped and looked at that and said, WTF, why the hell are those British people, those rulers, why are they taxing salt? They're bleeding that country dry, aren't they? If they've gotten to the point where they're taxing salt, where they'll arrest 60,000 people for walking to the ocean and picking up salt from the beach. It's hard to hide behind a lie forever. Not when it's exposed clearly for what it is. And so we see this. If you have one person who refuses to pay taxes, well, that might just be a crank who's selfish. If they're willing to go to jail for it, well, we might take more notice of that. Muhammad Ali going to jail rather than going to fight in Vietnam. Well, that's courageous to take jail. That might persuade some folks. Oh, he felt strongly about this. Strongly enough to go to jail for it. Let me rethink this. Could happen. One group goes to sit at a lunch counter to order a bowl of soup. They're met with batons and beatings and snarling dogs in prison. Who's right? If you're trying to change minds, if you're trying to activate the indifferent, if you're trying to persuade the majority, would you rather be in the group of people who are trying to lawfully order a bowl of soup and pay for it with money? Or on the side that's outraged by that action and sends in police with guns and clubs and dogs to stop it? I'm not sure what the answer is for Black Lives Matter, for that movement. Sometimes raising consciousness is the best you can do. Marching, assembling, holding signs, being right near the White House certainly raised even more awareness. The president retreated to his bunker. He built a new fence around his house, and he used tear gas on peaceful protesters to clear a path for a photo op. Not his best week. He looked scared and small, I think, that helped the protest movement. It's not direct civil disobedience. It's not the salt march or the uh, bus boycotts or the lunch counters. But not everything has to be. Not everything can be direct civil disobedience. It was the people, it was what the people in the streets thought was the right thing to do. And they stood up to be counted. And I think in that sense, it fulfilled the promise set forth in Thoreau's essay. It was people saying, I am an individual. I have not surrendered my own sense of justice, my sense of morality, my belief that a system that is unfair must be addressed and corrected. Not just at the ballot box, not just then, not just later. Now. 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 Okay, there we go. My thanks to Henry David Thoreau 
We'll have a bit more on him next time, including his trip to Walden. A true American original, Mr. Thoreau. He's worth reading. Enjoy those well-balanced sentences. And in the meantime, stay safe and take care and follow your conscience. Oh, and let me say one other thing. If you're out there deciding what to do, how to help, how to be involved, sometimes you need to stop talking about what should be done and what you think about it. Whether you see a problem with this action or that action, people are already out there trying to make things better. They've thought of most of the good ideas already, and they already know the weaknesses of the ideas. They're moving forward. Sometimes what you need to do is stop analyzing and just start helping. Sometimes you don't need to be the super person full of good ideas and full of, well, you should do this and you shouldn't do that. Sometimes you should just act. Show your commitment through your actions, not just your words. Sometimes you should just plunge in, help, be quiet, listen, stay out of the way, and help. Be a force for good. Don't be so paralyzed by cynicism that you miss your chance to do good and to do good well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.